All right, open up your Bibles, if you would, please, to John 17, Lord's High Priestly Prayer. And let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together and then get right into the study, because I'd like to get you out of here on time for once. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this next hour together would be sanctified, that it would be set apart, entirely devoted to your use, to accomplish that which you desire to teach all of us through your word by your Holy Spirit. And I would pray, Father, that we would all have teachable spirits and spiritually attuned ears to hear the words that our Lord prayed in this significant prayer. And that we would apply the significance of this prayer to our own appreciation of his person, of who he is today, and of his passion in this prayer, and of his purposes revealed to us in this prayer. We thank you, righteous Father, for the privilege to know you through your Son. Thank you for the assurances that we receive from your word and and from the words of Christ that you are Indeed, God in heaven, you are the Lord God Almighty of everything. You are sovereignly in control. And we thank you that you are a good God. You are a holy and righteous God. And you're not an impersonal God. You are one who cares about the affairs of your people down to the littlest detail, the hairs on our heads, and that you care for this universe that you have created. Thank you that we are kept by your power, and we are kept from the evil one, and we are kept for that day when we will, united and sanctified and glorified together, behold the glory of your Son. We ask that you would now deliver us from the anxieties and from the insecurities that come from a lack of faith in your sovereign control. Help us to focus on what you have to say to us and and forget about all the cares of the world. We ask that the ministry here today would be one that would lift up your son because we know that in exalting him, we will please you. We know that without a shadow of a doubt, we will please you and bring glory to your name. We ask that you would evangelize anyone who is lost here today, who has never truly known, had a personal relationship with the the Lord Jesus, has never been born again. We ask that you would evangelize through your word and help those of us who already do know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, that uh, we would ever increasingly have the mind of Christ and rejoice in it. And now we ask, Lord, that the entrance of your words would give light and would give additional stimulus to our faith, which every one of us needs at this point in time until we see you and our faith is turned to sight. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John 17. Did you all read through it three times this past week? I hope you did. Some of you maybe even read through it more than that. It's only 26 verses, so it's easy to read through. And I encourage you, as long as we're in it, would you please try to read through it at least three times every week? All right? I think that will help you immensely as we study through it. Let's begin our lesson by reading 
John 17. I'm not going to read the whole prayer, but I am going to read what we're going to try to look at this morning, and that is the first five verses of John 17. So let's begin by looking at verse 1, where it says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Later on in our lesson this morning, we're going to talk about the fact that in that verse, verse 2, there are three gifts. Three gifts. What are they? And this is eternal life. Now he defines what eternal life is. What is eternal life? That they may, might know thee, the only true God. And who else? Jesus Christ, of course, his son, whom thou hast sent. You know that is the only time that Jesus Christ ever called himself Jesus Christ. He refers to himself as other titles, but there alone is the only time he calls himself Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee since when? Before the world was. What a powerful prayer. You know, I was looking through it. And you do this as you read. Um, did, you, did you circle all the times it says the word world? 19 of them. I went through there and I, I, I found some more sevens. Seven times we are referred to, believers are referred to as God's love gift to his son. Also, did you know that seven times the Lord Jesus uses the word glory? Glorify, excuse me, glorify or glorified seven times. Wouldn't you know it? Of course. And seven times he calls his father, father, or righteous father, or, um, uh, oh, holy father, whatever it is. But seven times he refers to, one time he calls him the only true God. But that's just amazing to me. You know, if you were giving a prayer, how could you ever figure out that you're going to say this seven times and this seven times? Doesn't that alone prove that he is God? There are many ways, just in these five verses, that Jesus Christ demonstrates his deity. That's one of your homework questions. By the way, the homework answers are in the back of your book, because I'm not going to talk about that today. I've got too much other territory to cover. Some of what I'm going to share this morning is not in your books, but I want you to get a double-duty lesson. So read the lesson, number 160 this week, and answer all the questions at the end of the book. Some of them might be a little bit of a repeat of what we talked about last week, but that's no problem, isn't it, to be repetitious? That's how we learn. But I'm going to be trying every week to give you some new material that isn't in the book. That way you're learning more, aren't you? Because you're learning what's in the book, and then you're learning what I'm teaching you that's new. But uh, so I'm not going to cover how many ways he demonstrates his deity. That's for you to figure out. But if you have trouble, you can do your homework first and then check yourself by looking at the back of the book and the answers. Okay. Try it that way. We'd rather you do that. Okay. Um, The Old Testament, you all know that the Old Testament is full packed full of messianic prophecies. What are messianic prophecies? Well, they're predictions ahead of time about the coming Messiah of Israel, the coming king, the promised seed of the woman who would redeem mankind from sin, promised all the way back from Genesis 3.15. The Old Testament is full of messianic prophecies about this coming one. 
And as we study those prophecies in the Old Testament, we find that the promised Savior, Messiah, King of Israel, would fulfill three different roles. When he came, he would fulfill three different positions or roles or offices, whatever you want to come call them. He would be, what? First of all, a prophet, one who would speak forth the messages of God. He would also be a priest, exactly, prophet, priest. He would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there was a strange fellow who came out from nowhere at the time of Abraham and worshipped the Most High God and was... Also a priest and a king, which was never heard of. as a priest because he was the king of Salem, the king of peace, the king of righteousness, he's called in the Old Testament. And we learn from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, that he had no beginning and no end. He is a really mysterious fellow, isn't he? Melchizedek. Well, Christ was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Aaron. He wasn't from the Aaronic priesthood, and he wasn't from the Levitical priesthood. Did Jesus come from the tribe of Levi? No. He came from the tribe of Judah. And nowhere does it talk about a descendant of Judah being a priest. So very strange. But anyway, he, he was also predicted to be a priest. And the coming Messiah would be a king. Prophet, priest, and king. And no man... No man was ever allowed to hold all three of those offices in Israel. Now, there were some occasions when a man who was a king tried to also be a priest, and God was not very happy about that. Remember, King Saul tried to do that. Uh, So no man, the only one who held two of those offices was strange Melchizedek, who was both a um, priest and a king. So in considering Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of messianic prophecies, we must ask ourselves if he does indeed meet Old Testament messianic credentials of being prophet, priest, and king. And what is the answer? Does Jesus Christ meet all those credentials? Absolutely yes. He is the only man who has ever lived, ever lived, and ever will live, who does meet all three of those roles and those requirements. During the 33 years of his earthly life, you know, when he walked in, veiled in human flesh, Jesus fulfilled God's supreme role as prophet. He was God's supreme prophet, wasn't he? He was because the most wonderful utterances ever to come from human lips came from the Lord Jesus, the anointed prophet of God. Because every word that Jesus spoke, not just his predictions about future events, but every word that came out of his mouth was the very word of God, wasn't it? So he was a prophet like no other prophet had ever been. Because every word out of the lips of Moses or Elijah or any other prophet wasn't the very word of God, was it? So he was the supreme prophet while he was here for 33 years on planet Earth. No one ever revealed God to man as Jesus Christ did. Why? Well, because he was God incarnate. Well, upon his entrance into heaven, you know, at the time of his ascension, he officially then officially entered into the phase of his priestly work didn't he? Today, we're in that phase. For 33 years, he fulfilled the role of prophet on earth. Now he is currently fulfilling his second role as the high priest of believers, isn't he? 
He is interceding for you and I. He's fulfilling his role as priest. But we, history-wise, where you and I are today, we are getting very close to the time when we he will return and assume his role as what? King. King. Prophet, priest, and king. The next role that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to fulfill is the assumption of his position as king. He is king of heaven currently, but has he ever ruled yet as king of earth? No, there's a usurper prince right now called Satan. But when the Lord returns, he will be king of kings and lord of lords, and he will rule over this world as its righteous king for how long? Well, for a thousand years on this earth, and then we'll go into the eternal state where he will, yes, be king forever and ever. So isn't that interesting? His past role, his earthly role, 33 years, was as prophet. His present heavenly role is as priest, and his yet future role is as king during the kingdom. And now I mentioned all that. In order to draw on one aspect of the Old Testament priestly ministry and use it to prepare us for our study of John 17. Now, there was a day, and you probably all know this, there was a day on the Jewish religious calendar of Israel that was known as the Day of Atonement. It was a very special day when just one priest, one Jewish priest, and who was he? the high priest of Israel, could enter into the Holy of Holies of the, first of all, the tabernacle and then the temple. And remember what was in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And this high priest had a God-given assignment to do, and it was to make atonement for the sins of the nation, the sins of the people of God, the sins of Israel. But before he could enter into that most holy place, he was to take in one hand a censer of coals. Now, I come out of a Greek Orthodox background, so I can picture this 100%. Some of you might have to work on it. But I can picture a priest holding a censer. It was, on, it was gold and it was on a long chain, and it had incense coming out of it, and he would... He would bless all of us and shake it, you know, and do all this stuff. But that's what the high priest would go in carrying a censer of coals in one hand. And he got those coals from the great brazen altar, which was out in the outer court. That's where the sacrifice was made. He would take that censer of coals in one hand, and in the other hand, he carried a handful of incense. And when he went into the holy place right before the holy of holies, you know, there was a veil, couldn't see into the holy, but right before the holy of holies was another altar, which is called the altar of incense. Some of you might have a temple design in the back of your Bibles and you could look at it and know what I'm talking about. But he would take that handful of incense, go into the holy place and put it, throw it on top of the hot coals of the altar of incense. And what would immediately happen? The incense would ignite and it would fill the whole whole place with smoke. Lots of smoke. I remember one time in our service when I was a child growing up, there was so much incense in the church that I fainted. I passed out. <laughs> As a strong, it had a strong odor. But, um, but it would just fill that place with smoke. You see, he was carefully instructed under Mosaic law to do this because the smoke that was created from the combination of the incense hitting those hot coals shrouded or clouded 
the uh, most holy place, that whole sacred chamber where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now remember, above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the Ark of the Covenant square box. On top of it were two cherubim and their, their wings, you know, met together. And the mercy seat was on top of that. What, what dwelt above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place? I should say, who dwelt there? That was where God tabernacled with his people and the Shekinah glory of God was. Well, if any mere man looked upon the Shekinah glory of God, he would perish. He would die. So it had to be clouded. The whole area had to be shrouded with this smoke. And he was very carefully instructed to do that. Okay? So once a year, the high priest was allowed to enter into that sacred chamber, but only after it was filled with that heavy smoke from the burning incense. Well, not only did the incense shroud the holy place so the man didn't die, but there was another purpose for that rising incense. In the Old Testament, the rising of the incense, the smoke from the incense, symbolized what? The prayers, it was a symbolic picture of the prayers of God's people. And something else that is very significant is that the high priest was, first of all, first of all, to pray for himself before he ever even entered into that sacred chamber. He had to confess his own sins before he ever entered in. And after he prayed for himself, then who did he pray for? He was the intercessor, the mediator for the people of God. He would confess the sins of the people of Israel. He prayed for the sins of the people. And think of that in light of the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. <clears throat> well, it was after then, it was after the ascension of those prayers represented by the rising smoke that the high priest, you know, once he confessed his sins and the sins of the people, he could then enter into the presence of God as the representative intercessor for the people. Something else that was extremely important was that he also took with him into that chamber <clears throat> the blood of an innocent sacrifice. Because, and that sacrifice was offered out there on that great brazen altar. Okay, he took with him that innocent blood because his whole purpose in entering into that sacred chamber was to do what? To offer on behalf of the people a blood atonement for the sin, their sins at the mercy seat. Now, knowing that background <clears throat> or reviewing it, a lot of you already knew it, but reviewing it, isn't it significant that just a few hours before the Lord Jesus died, not just for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world, just a few hours before he would basically be offered on that great brazen altar, which symbolized the cross, he offered up to God this high priestly prayer. And isn't it also significant that he prayed first for himself, just like the whole pattern? You know, all that Old Testament stuff was to point to him. He wasn't fulfilling it. It was picturing him. He was fulfilling it also, but he's the one who wrote all those instructions. So he prays first for himself, and then secondly, in this priestly prayer, who does he pray for? His people, all of his followers. Now, however, there is a main distinction 
between in this analogy between what the high priest of Israel would do and what our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, did. You see, his high priestly prayer and its petitions differ dramatically from the prayers of the high priest, the Jewish high priest of Israel. Why? Because instead of confessing his own sins, he, he couldn't confess his sins because he had none. Instead of confessing his sins, what did he do? Amazing. He prayed that he would be glorified. That's a big difference, isn't it? And instead of confessing the sins of his followers, his people, he asks that they too would be glorified. Wow, that is a really big distinction, isn't it? Uh, but he did follow the order by praying for himself and, uh, first and then the people. And yet because of the finished work he knew he would accomplish, if you look at verse 4, he puts it in the past tense. He says, I have finished the work. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But he, it was such a sure thing, he knew he could say that basically it was finished. Because he knew he would finish that work, he could do what no human high priest ever could have done. He uh, asked for his glorification and the glorification of his people. He's not just another human Jewish high priest. Who is he? He is the great and eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who had no beginning and no ending. Well, so the Lord's high priestly prayer of John 17 and the manner in which he prayed it is to demonstrate to you and I that he had... Now, in our Life of Christ study, he had completed his role as earthly prophet. What had he just done? He had just spoken his last sermon, hadn't he? Basically, his role as prophet is over. And now he is about to begin his intercessory, intercessory, that doesn't sound right, his mediatory work as, as high priest for all of those who would put their faith in him. And this, this prayer here is definitely high priestly in nature. And it was offered when? Just a few hours before the completion of our redemption, which he accomplished on the cross by shedding his own innocent blood. And after that, after his sacrifice on the great brazen altar, so to speak, he would soon enter into the Holy of Holies of Heaven. He would enter into God's presence and take with him that innocent shed blood of his and sprinkle it on the altar in heaven. It would, And when he did that, it would completely and fully satisfy the justice of a holy God. For the sins of all people, all people. However, to appropriate that, you have to, in faith, believe that he did indeed shed his blood and die on your behalf. You have to believe that. You have to appropriate that. You have to internalize that. But he did shed his blood for all people. And, and you know, unlike the great high priest who every year had to go through that little ritual, right? Every year on the Day of Atonement, he had to do all that stuff, praying, you know, confess his sins, go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood and all that. But when Jesus did it, it was a once-for-all transaction, wasn't it? And it ended. It ended forever the entire need for a temple priest sacrificial system on earth. 
You know, if you go into a church and there is still a priest and he still is shaking his incense and uh, he is still the one you have to inter- he's your intercessor to God. Um, and and they, they've got this whole system where nobody can go into the Holy of Holies or whatever they call it back there except him. You know what all that is? Pure Old Testament. That's been done away with. That's been replaced with the new system where now you and I, every one of us, if you're a believer, we're all saints. That shocked me the first time somebody said I was a saint. I said, oh, no, no, no. There was a St. Catherine, but that's not me. <laughs> but now but we are. We're called saints. We're all saints. We together are the priesthood of God, aren't we? And we have access to go boldly ourselves into the presence of God with our petitions. We don't need a, a man mediator. We have a great high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ. That's Old Testament. That's been done away with. So many churches don't understand that. They're still in the, in the symbolism instead of in the reality. All right, well, let's turn our focus back to verses 1 to 5 and the Lord's petitions for himself. By the way, that's why the veil was rent. You know, at the time Jesus died, said it's finished, he died, gave up his ghost. What happened? God ripped that veil, tore it in half from top to bottom. Man didn't do that. God did that. To show it's finished, you can have access to me yourself. And why did he allow Titus Vespasian and the Romans to come and destroy the whole temple and the all of that so the priests couldn't do their sacrifices anymore. Why did he allow that to happen? To show it's done, it's finished. Okay. All right, let's go back to verse 1 to 5. How does Jesus open his prayer after he lifted up his eyes? Well, he opens it by saying, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son. Look at verse 5. He repeats his request. He says, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self. What is he saying still when he gets to verse 24? Father, I will that they, that means those you gave me, may behold my glory. Okay, seven times he talks about glory. His primary petition is to be what? Glorified. Very good. To be restored to the dignity, to the honor, to the majesty that he shared with his father before even the creation of the world. That's more than just pre-incarnate glory. That's pre-creation glory. And also, in his humanity, he's going to have a new glory added to that pre-creation glory. He's going to have the glory his father gave him um, in his humanity for being the sacrifice for our sins. That's an additional glory to his pre-creation glory. A human body kind of glory. I can't picture it, but it's, it's true. It's there. All right, so, as we discussed last week, um, what we usually do picture is more how the Lord Jesus Christ was than how he is today, right? And, and the, probably the primary reason for that is because the Gospels are full of how he was when he walked this earth veiled in his human flesh. So when we talk about Jesus or when we sing about Jesus, what do we probably most of the time picture in our minds? And we all grew up with a little picture Bible books, you know, and we've taught Sunday school. And we always, I mean, I know I'm guilty. I picture Jesus as a man, you know, with dark hair and a beard and in a white robe and sandals on his feet and walking around all the time. And a wonderful, godly, perfect man. But that's usually how I picture him instead of how he is today. 
And this is not only probably due to the fact that the Gospels are centered on his earthly life, which I'm not saying is wrong. We do need to know about his earthly life. Of course we do. But also it may be because of our weakness, the weakness of our appreciation for the position that he does occupy today. And I got to think, how is it that we teach our children about Jesus? How is it we teach our children, our grandchildren? Don't we teach them about Jesus as he did appear on earth? Isn't that the picture we're passing along to them too? And again, nothing wrong with that, but don't we also need to be stressing to them that that's only how he was for a short time? Let me tell you how he is today. Uh, You couldn't even look at him with human eyes today. We're going to have to be glorified to behold him face to face because it would just burn our eyes out if we saw him as he is today. His face shineth as the sun. His eyes are like flames of fire. His feet like burning brass. Thank you. And you can read the description like we did last week in Revelation 1. But let's remember to, to not just teach our children about Jesus after the flesh, but to teach them about how he is today. And uh, what was he focused on in this prayer? What was he focused on? Let's remember, what was his passion? He's focused here on uh, praying for an altered state from what he was at the time he was praying this prayer. We know at the time he prayed it, he was yet still in a human body, the likeness of man. He was not yet glorified, was he? And we know also that his petition was granted. Everything the Lord prays for is granted because his, he's in perfect accord and perfect will with the Father, so all his petitions are granted. We know this was not only because of who he was, but we are told in the preaching of Peter in the book of Acts, and we are told by the, the writings of Paul in the New Testament that he was indeed exalted and glorified. And we know from John's description of seeing him in the book of Revelation that this petition was made. I mean, it was granted. He was exalted at the right hand of the Father. He is glorified today. And so, therefore, our concern should be to try to understand the nature of his petition here and the fulfillment of that petition because it will enlarge our concept of who Christ is. Isn't this Bible study all about enlarging our knowledge of Jesus? For 10 years or whatever it's been, we've been studying him to get to know him better, to learn of him so that we can worship him better. Well, this is part of it, understanding who he is today. I mean, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God-man still in heaven, but let's enlarge our concept of him. And when we do that, when we, when we picture him more as he is today, glorified and exalted, that kind of... Um, makes us look at ourselves a little bit differently in our relationship to him. It's almost like going from singing, what a friend we have in Jesus, to singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You know, when you real like John, if you saw Jesus right now, we would all fall down before him. It kind of puts ourselves in a better perspective of who he is and who we are in relationship to him, doesn't it? I mean, he is worthy of our very best, our, our worship. And, and, and this, to me, kind of, oh, I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to. It, it just kind of rebukes this whole 
attitude um, that we have in, in Christendom today where it's more of a casual approach to the Lord God? Uh, I know I'm going to step on somebody's toes, but we worship a holy God. When we come into his house, I believe, and you can disagree with me, but I believe he is worthy of me cleaning myself up and putting on my best. And yes, it might be a cultural thing, but even in Africa, they should clean themselves up and put on their best when they go to worship God in his house. And I, I just don't agree with this buddy business. You know, Jesus is our buddy. He is God Almighty, and he is worthy of our very, very best. Um, All right, so I got off on a tangent. (laughs) Uh, So he's he's praying for something that would alter him from what, what he was when he prayed. He says, Father, glorify thy son. And he was praying out loud, wasn't he? Why was he praying out loud, audibly? So that his disciples would hear this prayer. And so that they, one of them, John, would record it so that we might hear his prayer. And why did he want his disciples and why did he want all of his followers throughout all the ages to hear his prayer? Well, he gave us the reason, remember, in verse 13. He wants us to hear it so that we might have his joy fulfilled in ourselves. Not just joy, his joy. That's a whole other realm of joy. To have joy when you know you're going to die on a cross in a few hours? I want his joy. I don't want your joy. (laughs) I want Christ's joy. And so let's really try to hear what he is saying. And what we hear him say in the first three verses is the reason or the purpose for his petition for the Father to glorify him. Now, just for a little sidetrack here, which is what I've been doing all morning, but (laughs) unbelievers... Someone who doesn't believe who Christ is and acknowledge it. Some unbelievers might think that such a prayer, you know, Father, glorify thou me, sounds really pretty self-centered and, uh, and uh, egotistical. They might even say, well, look at this. He prays for himself. Shouldn't he have prayed for his people first and himself last? No, well, they don't understand that whole Old Testament pattern, do they? Neither do they understand that if he didn't pray for himself first to be glorified, he could never pray for all the other things he prayed for. If he wasn't glorified, none of those other prayer requests would ever be met. So he had to pray for himself first. But the unbeliever doesn't understand that. But they'd say, well, this is really egotistical to pray that he would be glorified. However, for one thing, remember this. Jesus is God, okay? So if anybody might have the right to be egotistical, wouldn't you think it could be God? (laughs) Doesn't he sort of have a right to be egotistical? And yet, he isn't. He was the most humble man to ever live. And for God himself to become the most humble man who ever lived is certainly not egotistical, is it? It absolutely is the ultimate in humility. Jesus Christ was humility incarnate when he had every right to be egotism incarnate. And besides that, if you really carefully look at what Jesus was praying here, which the critics don't ever bother to do, and this is really the reason for his petition to be glorified, what he really is praying is for his glorification so that in his glorification, he might also glorify his father. 
He only wants to be glorified so that that would bring glory to his father. His absolute devotion was to complete the work that he had come to do, that God had sent him to do, so that the father might be glorified both by men and by the holy angels. You see, the holy angels were watching everything when Jesus came. They're watching. You know, they didn't really have the big picture. They're not omniscient, so they're watching. And when they saw and it dawned on them everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross, they glorified the wisdom of the Father for his great redemptive plan. So he's glorified by men and angels. Now, I got to thinking, do you, did Jesus pray that he would be glorified? Now, this would be my human nature, probably. <laughs> but did he pray to be glorified so that he could then appear in his resurrected, glorified, magnificent, unveiled Glory to those stiff-necked scribes and Pharisees and those scoffing the resurrection from the dead Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, and Jesus could appear to them in his resurrected body, and, and, and so he wanted to be glorified so he could appear to all those guys and say, Ha-ha, I told you so. <laughs> you should have listened to me. Here I am. Proved you wrong. Now get down and grovel. Wine and pine, because it's too late for you now. Is that why he wanted to be glorified? No, absolutely not. And if it was, then why did he never once appear to an unbeliever in his glorified body? He doesn't want to be honored and, and, and praised by unbelievers, those who refused to surrender to him. He didn't even want the demons who knew who he was but didn't surrender to him. He didn't even want them to declare that he was the Holy One of God. He doesn't want the praise and worship of unbelievers. He only wants it of you and I, believers. That's interesting. He was really only praying for himself so that by his glorification he might glorify his Father. The Father's glory is the distinctive purpose for requesting what he does here in this prayer. And isn't it interesting to think about the fact that he didn't pray for something else? I mean, really, when you get down to it, he knew he would be glorified because he was with God in eternity past when they created this whole redemptive plan. And he knew he would be glorified. He didn't have one doubt about it, that he would be resurrected, exalted to sit at the right hand of God the Father, that the work would be completed, and that he would be glorified. So why bother praying about it? Couldn't he have taken this time to pray for something like um, um, the strength to die? Now, I would have done that. You know, if I knew I was going to be nailed to a, a cross... And have to suffer for all those hours. I, I think I would have prayed, Lord, be merciful to me and please give me the strength to get through this. Or don't you think he might have prayed something like a little uh, lightening of, of the pain? Or, or maybe to ask for some encouragement from heaven during those horrible hours ahead? He only asked, however, that his hour be a means of glorifying his father. Talk about selflessness. He knew that when he finished 
the divine plans made in eternity past, he knew that all heaven would break forth with praise to God. He knew that one day also believers of all the different ages, Old Testament, New Testament, Millennial Kingdom, etc., all believers, unified, sanctified, glorified, would behold his glory. And when we all together behold his glory, who then is glorified? His Father. Because the Father did everything in and through and by his Son. And this is what Christ wanted above everything else. Therefore, he was praying essentially this. Father, do this for me so that I might be able to do more for you. And again, isn't he giving us an example? You know, this is how we should live. This is how we should pray. This is how we should live. Everything we do, whatsoever we do, should be done for the glory of God. And nothing should be asked of him except those things we know will bring him glory. So, he's our example in all things. Now, the Lord Jesus had in his spirit and in his mind the whole historic background of humanity, particularly of those who were called the sons of God. You know, there was an occasion, and it's very sad to read about, in Malachi 1.6, where God the Father was so grieved with the lives of those who called themselves his sons and his daughters. I'm not just talking about the ungodly, the pagans, but he was so grieved over those who said they were his children that he asked this question. He said, if I be a father... If you're my sons and daughters and I'm your father, where is my honor? They weren't honoring him as their father. They claimed that he was. You see, never once, never once in the long history of humanity had there been a son or a daughter who truly had glorified God as he is. I mean, even think of Adam. If anybody had a good shot at glorifying the father with his whole life and everything, every thought, it would be Adam because he's the only one who was not born, created without sin. Adam wasn't born, you know that, right? <laughs> he was created. Um, but he, he, even he blew it, didn't he? So there'd never been a son or daughter who had truly glorified God. So he sent his own eternal son in the likeness of human flesh. And the first recorded words we have out of this eternal son are what? I must be about my father's business. He was even from a child doing nothing but wanting to glorify his father. And then throughout his earthly ministry, we have heard him say things like John four thirty four: My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. He was saying there that this is what nourishes me. Doing God's will nourishes my soul. It's my meat. Do you know that doing the will of God is not just putting out, putting out, putting out. Do you know that doing the will of God also has a reflex response by which you are taking in? Nothing satisfies like doing the will of God. It's, it should be your meat. It just I don't know how it happens, but when you know you're doing God's will, you're nourished, aren't you? It's our spiritual daily bread. 
He also said things like he only did those things which he saw the father do. He said his doctrine wasn't his, but it was his father's. He said he did always those things that pleased the father. Do you know what his overall rule of conduct was? This. Lo, it is written in the, in the volume of the book, it is written, I come to do thy will, O God. Wouldn't that be a good rule of conduct for you and I? It is written, I come, I'm here to do the will of God. The Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence and the sight of men and angels, did what had never been done and never again would be done in all of history. He entirely, completely, fully glorified the Father. The whole time he was on earth, never once did he do anything, think anything, have a wrong attitude that did not glorify the Father. So, you see, therefore, in John 17, he's simply praying for his glorification for the same purpose he had in his humanity. All he ever wanted in his humanity was to glorify the Father. Now, even in his glorification, he wants to glorify the Father. Father, the hour is come for my glorification that the Son might glorify you, Father. And so this petition is entirely in keeping with what his whole earthly ministry had also been about. And then we ask this question. In what sense did the Lord intend for his apostles to understand that he would glorify the Father when he himself was glorified? And that's exactly what verses 2 and 3 explain to us. Now, this is going to get confusing. And so this is a a point in time where you might want to reread the books and try to get it a little bit better. But uh, he's saying in verses 2 and 3, by what means he himself would glorify the Father. And it would be by way of his resurrection from the dead and his subsequent ascension and glorification in heaven that you see he could then prove that he could give eternal life. If he didn't raise from the dead, would any of you have confidence that he could raise you from the dead? (laughs) No, and give you eternal life? If he wasn't glorified to his father and the high priest today in heaven, if all that didn't happen, we wouldn't have any confidence that he could glorify us and take us to heaven. So he says, uh, look at verse 2. As thou, Father, hast given him, speaking of himself, the Son, power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. I'll explain that in a minute, but I want you to notice here, this is one of your homework questions. There are three gifts in that in that one verse, three gifts. What are they? Well, first of all, there's God's gift of the headship over all flesh. That gift was given by God to his son. He made Jesus Christ the sovereign ruler over all flesh. Now, particularly here, he's not just talking about living creatures. He's talking about humanity, okay? That God, that God gave to his son the rulership over all of humanity. That's the first gift. The second gift is the gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ gives to... Gift of eternal life that Jesus gives to believers. What's the third gift? The third gift is... Us. We are God's love gift to his son, aren't we? Believers are God's love gift to his son. So in that one verse, three gifts. That's a good gift verse. (laughs) 
All right, so Christ has been given the sovereign rule over all flesh, but here he's particularly speaking about humanity. I saw a bumper sticker last week that said, have you seen this one? It said, humankind. And then it said, be both. Think about it. Be human and be kind. A lot of people, a lot of humans aren't very human. A lot of humans are worse than animals. The way they tear and devour one another. I thought that was a good bumper sticker. Have you gotten it yet, Terry? <laughs> she had a puzzled look on her face. Uh, so <clears throat> he, he was given the sovereign rule over all humankind. He desires, of course, the Lord doesn't will that any man should perish. He desires to impart eternal life to everyone. But only those the Father has given to him will receive his offer of eternal life. You see, the Son gives eternal life to none but those who are given to him. And yet, all men, without distinctions, are to be invited to repent and believe. Even though God has elected those he gives to his Son, it also, make sure you hear this part, it also remains true that all men, women, and young people, have the responsibility to choose, and they will be held responsible for their decision about Christ. So no one is going to have the excuse on Judgment Day to say, I was not given to Christ. I was not one of the love gifts from the Father to Christ, therefore I could not be saved. No one is going to have that excuse. And yet, we will one day find out, it will prove true, that no one was saved except those who were given by the Father to the Son. Now, can you understand that? Can you wrap your little mind about that? Not completely, either can I. All I know is the Bible teaches both. You know, the Bible does teach divine election. Guess what else the Bible teaches? Whosoever will. Human responsibility, free choice. It teaches both. How they come together, I don't know. It's the complex duality of divine election and human responsibility. Best I've ever heard it explained. It's like two parallel lines that we don't see how they ever come together, but in heaven, in God's eyes, they do. And that's the best I can do, ladies, on that one. But the Bible teaches both. Well, we mentioned in our lesson last week that there are seven times in this prayer when believers are referred to as the Father's gift to his Son. And if you think about that, that we are God's love gift to his Son, think about that really deeply, it makes the security of our salvation a sure thing. Why? Well, do you think that God the Father would show his love for his son by giving him a love gift that at some point later on he would take back? I was thinking about some of those wonderful love gifts you guys gave me for the 25 years of Bible study, like that beautiful wall hanging if you were there, or that picture of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, which I have hanging in my house and love thoroughly. But what if Terry was to come to my house and say, well, we all changed your mind, we don't love you anymore, and she took those things back? That wouldn't be very nice. We don't have to worry about that with God. Our security, and and what could those love gifts hanging on my wall do to lose their security? 
they themselves, you know, nothing, their actions or behavior is going to lose their security. Their security is in the fact that it is the love of God the Father for God the Son that keeps the love gift secure, isn't it? I don't know if you can follow me, but that is true security. God is not going to take back something that he gave to his son. Well, if you thought that was difficult, this next paragraph here is really difficult. (laughs) When you read through that prayer three times this week, did you have a lot of mystifying passages where you said, whoa, I wonder what that means? I mean, this is a deep, deep prayer. And greater men than than me, I'm not a man, but greater men and women who have studied this prayer have never been able to plummet its depth. So don't think that we're going to be able to do that here. But, all right, put on your thinking caps. In the councils of eternity past, God the Father appointed the Son to be the sovereign head of the human race. There was this Trinitarian arrangement by which the Father gave to his Son the special mission to carry out the redemption of the human race. Now, Christ's petition here to be glorified is entirely in keeping with his authority that was given to him by the Father, his authority over all humanity. Because when he exercises his authority to give eternal life to those the Father has given to him, the Father is then glorified in those who's been given to them because this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they might know the Father. How is it that we receive eternal life? Remember Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. How do we receive eternal life? We believe in God and we believe also in Jesus Christ, uh, our Redeemer. It is by knowing the Father and by knowing the Son. And you can't say you know the Father unless you know the Son. You can't know the Son unless you know the Father. It is by knowing both of them. And when we know both of them, that is then the essence of having eternal life. Because they themselves are eternal life. So when you know them and receive Christ and receive his Holy Spirit, then you have eternal life. So it's kind of cyclical, the big circle. You see, when a sinner finally comes to know God, not just head knowledge, heart knowledge, you know, internalizing the facts about God and about Christ into the heart, personally, intimately knowing God, when a person comes to know God and accepts Christ as Savior, God is glorified. God is glorified every time there is a a new believer. And so now Jesus says in his prayer, the hour had come for that to be accomplished. And in verse 3, what does he do? He defines eternal life. He says, the hour has come that I would be glorified, and as head over all humanity, I now will have the power and the authority to give eternal life. And then he defines eternal life. He says, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and, first time he calls himself this, what? Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Interesting. I mean, it's just a bit, you have to think it through. I don't have time to develop it, but it's very interesting. That all of this, you know, to to glorify God, you have to receive God. He is eternal life. When you have eternal life, you glorify God. It's just all one big circle. All right, just go like this. Just pretend you're getting it, all right? (laughs) That wasn't as hard as the joke on humankind. Okay. (laughs) 
All right. The Lord was amplifying his petition of verse two, saying, in effect, all right, maybe this will make it simpler. He's saying, in effect, unless I am glorified in resurrection, I cannot bestow eternal life upon those you give to me, Father. Without my glorification in my ascension to heaven, the Holy Spirit cannot come, right? And without him, there can be no knowledge of the one true God and his son. Nobody is saved apart from the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who draws a sinner to Christ through the word. So Jesus is saying to his father, unless you grant my petition, which I know you're going to do because I was there with you when we planned this. But unless you grant my petition to glorify me on earth in resurrection, there will be no eternal life because men will not believe in me. And I am the only one who has made it possible for them, father, to know you. Did that help? All right. Now, just as the Lord's words in verses two and three were really an answer for how his glorification glorifies the Father. Verse 4 answers why it is now the hour for his glorification. You know, when the apostles heard him say that the hour is come, they must have wondered, why now? Because they all through their walk with him, they've been hearing him say over and over again, actually seven times, this is the seventh time, but they've heard him six times before say, My hour has not yet come. And now all of a sudden he says the hour has come. So there's probably saying, why now? It's you could set up the kingdom. Everybody's here. It's the Passover. Why now? I mean, let's not don't go away. They didn't want him to leave, did they? And so they must have been thinking, well, what does he mean when he says I have glorified the on the earth? I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. See, that's the answer for why the hour is now, why it has finally come. Why? Because Christ says, I've finished the work. The work is done. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But to the apostles, when they heard that, they said they must have said to themselves, well, I guess this means he's finished all his words. He just gave us that farewell discourse. So he's finished his words and he must be finished with all of his miracles. What they had no idea about was that he was speaking about his finished work on the cross. Because to them, the cross would have done anything but glorify the Father, would it? But specifically, when he's talking about his hour, he's talking about the hour on the cross. But did you notice that he did put all of this in the past tense? He says, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. In the mind of Christ, you see, he had already offered himself in substitutionary death. Now, it's strange to think that way for you and I, isn't it? It would be like if I came in here this morning and I said to all of you, Okay, I have finished the life of Christ's study. Now open your Bibles to John 17. And you'd say, Oh my, with each passing year, she is getting stranger and stranger. Which, by the way, is true. (laughs) But we don't think that way, do we? We don't talk like that. Um, But guess what? What? That's not at all a strange way for God to talk. Remember, this is God the Son talking face-to-face with God the Father. And it is entirely in keeping with the way that God often speaks of things like this. For example, about a thousand years before Christ was even born, do you know what he said, said through David? 
He said, they have pierced my hands and my feet. 700 years before Christ was even born, do you know what God said about his son? He said, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That seems strange, a strange way for us to talk, but it's, it's the way God talks. And what about Revelation 3, uh, 13.8, where we read about the coming Antichrist world leader, and it says that all those who dwell on the earth um, will bow and worship this being. And then it says all those whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb slain from when? <laughs> from the foundation of the world. Hmm. Now that's not how we would talk about it. But that's exactly how God expresses it. Why? Well, because God sees past, present, and future all at the same time. He's, you know, outside of time. And he's omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. So he sees everything. And he talks about future events as, as something settled. As something done. Because in his mind, it's, it's like a done deal. He already knows the end from the beginning. So he, it's like this. It's, it's like a man who's up in a tall building, okay? And he's watching from his lofty position up there in that building. He's looking out the window and he's watching a parade go down, going on, on the street below. Well, from his vantage point, he can see the entire parade. He can see those that band at the beginning and he can see the animals at the end or the clowns or whatever. But he can see the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. He can see the whole parade, whereas the people standing along the side of the street only see one section of the parade at a time, right? That's you and I. We could just see one section at a time. But God up there in his lofty position sees the whole thing. And uh, God is the eternal being who has ordained certain things to come to pass. To him, they're a done deal. It's settled. He sees it all. And the Lord doesn't just speak of things future as though they have already been accomplished, but he also speaks of things past as though they are still present. In Revelation 5, we read about a future scene. It hasn't happened yet. When John sees, you know, there's a scroll and it symbolizes the title deed to this earth. And they say, who is worthy to open the scroll? And there's no one found in the whole universe who's worthy except one. And how is he described? He's described as a lamb as it had been slain, which means it's given in the present tense. So as if it had just been slain. Now, that's yet future, and we know 2,000 years ago the lamb was slain. But they're talking like as if it had just been slain. And so that's just how someone talks who's outside of time and, and is in eternity. That's how God talks. So it's not unusual that Jesus says to his father, I have finished the work, even though he will not officially finish the work until when? Till he's up on that cross and he's about to give up his spirit himself, and he says, Te telestai, it is finished. That's when he will finish it. Now think about this. The God who can speak of the atonement on the cross with these words beforehand, as if it was already accomplished before it is even experienced, is the same God who can speak of his people in these terms. And that's exciting. Someone might mistakenly, and I know I have done this, 
Someone might mistakenly say to a lost person, if you will receive Christ, God will write your name in the book of life. But the Bible says the fact is that your name was written in the book of life when? Before the foundation of the world. And you and I will talk about the fact, you know, if we're saved, we talk about the fact that, oh, won't it be wonderful one day when we are glorified, when we're resurrected at the rapture and we're glorified. We speak about it as future because, now look at me, and I'm not glorified yet. Are you? No. We're not glorified yet. But how does God see us? Well, Romans 8.30, he says, uh, whom he called, he also justified, that means saved, and who he saved, them he also glorified, as if it's already a done deal. Now, how's that again for security? That's why we can say with Paul, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. He's going to complete it. He doesn't stop his projects halfway through because of something you do. Uh Uh-uh. He already sees you, if you're born again, as being glorified. That, again, is security. Well, I can't see. How many minutes have I got? A few? Because I've got applications I want to give real quickly. All right. There are uh, three applications to this lesson. Number one, I want to ask you, are you a love gift to Jesus? Can you confidently say that you are a love gift from God the Father to Jesus Christ the Son? If not, with all of my soul, I beseech you to accept his love gift to you of Christ, his love gift of making eternal life possible for you by putting your faith in his death and his shed blood for your sins. If you do that, which I beseech you to do today because none of us are guaranteed even this afternoon. If you do that in accepting God's love gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, you automatically become God's love gift to his son. And that is exciting to think about. Walk around with a big bow on you, your gift, your love gift. Second application, there is an eternal purpose being worked out in all things. Do you know that? This isn't all just dink. This is not just coincidence. There's no such thing as luck. Everything is being worked out by a sovereign God. Certain things are so settled and have been settled before the foundation of the world. They're so settled that it's as if they have already taken place. It's a done deal. God knows the end. He knows how everything is going to wrap up. He's up there watching the whole parade. Everything on earth is bound up in that truth. And there is nothing that is going to alter God's plans. He has a plan A, no such thing as a plan B. So that means, I mean, Judas Iscariot tried to alter the plans, change everything, right? He couldn't do it. The devil couldn't do it. Demons can't change God's sovereign providential plan. Iran, with her nuclear program, and Ahmadinejad, don't worry. It's all in God's sovereign control. Iran isn't going to change the plans of God. Washington, D.C., as frustrated as we all are in our economy and everything happening, Washington isn't going to change God's plan. And nothing. There's nothing. You're certainly not going to do it. 
Nothing can alter that truth. And so, therefore, it's nothing but sadness and anxiety and depression and defeat and disaster and grave misunderstanding and constant confusion to value anything other than that truth, that God still sits on his throne and he is orchestrating everything, down to the very details of your life, okay? And to the extent that we do value these truths and to the extent that we contribute our lives to those truths by seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and his glory, we will experience joy and security. That's what this prayer is about for us, to have joy, seeing the picture, the big picture. But to the extent that we do not value these truths and we think that, you know, oh, I shouldn't have done this and I shouldn't have married him and I shouldn't have had so many children. And, you know, if I had just and looking back and thinking that, you know, we're running the ship to that extent, we're we're going to live in sorrow and depression and waste and confusion. It's kind of like being in a mass, a part of a massive army entering into some gigantic struggle. And you just can't get in tune with what really is happening. You're just like on a different wavelength. So that everything that is handed to you to use in the battle and every assignment that you are given is confusing to you because you just don't have the big picture. And you're, you're not there to contribute to the accomplishment of it. What a joy it is to know that you have a purpose. There's so many people out there trying to figure out who they are and why they're here and where they're going. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it secure and joyful and gives you that peace to know that you have a purpose? You're not just an accident. Is you're here for a purpose. And what, what is that purpose? To glorify God. What security also there is to know that everything in Everything I've been given, you know, my life, my stewardship, my family, my health, my future, are all working out ultimately toward the the glory of God and for my own good. And that one day I ultimately will be glorified and he sees me as already glorified. You know, we're not just walking around groping in the dark like the rest of the world is. We know the whole picture. Really, we have been given the full parade, haven't we? We know how it's going to end. The work of Christ is a done deal. We just need to get on board by accepting it. And that is joy. And that is security. One other thing, and I'll close. Jesus prayed for certainties, didn't he? You know, we said, why did he bother to pray for these things? Because he knew they were already going to be fulfilled. He prayed for everything. He already knew he would be glorified. He knew you and I would be glorified. He knew all these things. And so you and I, sometimes we have the the idea in our minds, well, why pray for those things? I know that they're going to come to be anyway. But that's exactly the reason to pray. It's because then we've become part of the process of the prayer, of the answer to the prayer. It's like Daniel, okay? Daniel was looking at the writings of Jeremiah, and he saw, oh, Jeremiah said that we're only going to be in captivity for seven years. So what did he do? Daniel fell on his knees and he prayed, okay, God, you said we'd only be in captivity for 70 years. We're near the end of those 70 years, so let us free. You know, do what you said. Isn't that how you and I should pray? We should know the will of God and then pray back to him his will. And so that's why we can say, Maranatha, he's coming again. And we say, come Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. He said he's coming, so we pray in accordance with his will. And then we are part of the answer. 
And that gives us also that joy. This is the victory. You don't live without a purpose. You don't live for things that pass away. If you do, you're going to be miserable. We don't, we don't cling to anything on this earth. You, you, you don't want to spend your life on things that are just possible contingencies. You don't want to pray for things that are just possible contingencies. You want to live the truths of the word of God that are absolutes, that are predeterminations. And then you become part of fulfilling the word of God. And that's the way to live. And to the extent that we do that, we are joyful. So everybody, smile. Be of good cheer. We're going to die soon and be with him. <laughs> no, we're going to be raptured soon. <laughs> uh, let's pray. And thank you, Father, that there is in heaven today a glorified God-man, Jesus Christ. And because he has been glorified by resurrection on earth and glorified by his exaltation at your right hand, That means sinners can be saved. Anyone who places his or her faith in the resurrected, glorified Savior will receive the gift of his eternal life. And he will be God's love gift to his son. And I pray, Father, that there is no one in this room who has not become your love gift to Jesus. And if there is, please, Lord, may she take care of that today by just saying, Lord Jesus, I know you died for me. You shed your blood for me. Be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me. And we know that you will, and all heaven will break out in rejoicing. Lord, we love you. Thank you again for being our intercessory great high priest in heaven. We love you, and we pray in your name. Amen.